Max Verstappen wins easily in Baku to extend his title lead after another DNF cruels Charles Leclerc's championship chances. This is the F1 Strategy Report. My name's Michael Amanato and this is Round 8, the Azerbaijan Grand Prix. Powered by LeaveCal. Keep track of employee leave and make resource planning easy. Search LeaveCal in the Zero App Store. The Azerbaijan Grand Prix was intriguingly poised after just nine laps of racing. Carlos Sainz Hydraulics had failed on track and pole getter Charles Leclerc had used the subsequent virtual safety car to make a cheap pit stop for an ambitiously long one-stop strategy to beat both Red Bulls. But it all came to naught just 11 laps later, when the Monegasque's own power unit popped in a plume of smoke. It freed the Bulls to ease to a 1-2 finish, Max Verstappen comfortably quicker than Sergio Perez in a seismic day for Ferrari and Leclerc's title hopes. He's now 34 points behind Max Verstappen, having lost an average of 16 points per race since the Australian Grand Prix. Joining me to discuss putting a fork in Ferrari, their well-done Baku, it's freelance F1 writer and my In The Fast Lane podcast co-host, Matt Clayton. Matt, welcome back to the Strategy Report. Hello, Michael. Well done, Baku, but uh, well done as in burnt if you're yeah. Ferrari, isn't it? <laughs> it's much too well done. They went way, too, way over the time limit. They should have been keeping an eye on the clock. Indeed. What a monumental race this may prove to be in the championship. I guess we shouldn't get too far ahead of ourselves since there's still so long to go. But it certainly had the feeling of quite an important race, at least for this first phase of the championship. But before we talk about how badly wrong it went for Ferrari and Charles Leclerc, let's talk a little bit about this circuit because despite being relatively new, it is one of the more interesting ones on the calendar, not only for the setting, the fact we've got that very long straight, all that kind of stuff, but it is one of the true real compromised tracks for teams when they're approaching setup, isn't it? It's basically three tracks in one when you Mm. think about it. It's your standard street circuit, 90 left, 90 right for the first sector and a bit of the second sector. The part of the track that I actually find the most interesting is when they emerge through the ridiculously tight uh, tunnel entry there where the, where the turret is on the castle. The section across the top of the city is very, very high speed for a street mm. circuit. It's probably the most enjoyable part of the track. And then the last part, I mean, basically you are on a freeway, let's be honest. It's a two-kilometre <laughs> two straight. So it's this incredibly difficult compromise for everybody involved. It's three circuits that have been stapled together. It doesn't make a lot of sense. And other than the first race here where I think the Formula One paddock looked at the just complete absurdity (laughs) of the F2 race back in 2016 and went, oh, let's not do that. It generally throws up some fairly crazy races with safety cars and all sorts of incident and interruption, but... uh this time, perhaps not. Yeah, you say you say freeway. I've seen some photos they've been doing the rounds of that road during non-F1 times, and there's not a lot of free movement, let's say, on that road. It's hard to imagine. I don't know what that says about the traffic in Baku. Yeah, it's hard <laughs> to imagine, isn't it? Uh, it's an interesting one. We got to qualifying, and we'd sort of been getting a sense of how Red Bull and Ferrari had been approaching this setup challenge, because they are two cars with, based on what we've seen, fairly different strengths, and weirdly enough, they could both play to them because of the nature of this track, yes. as you detailed there, but unsurprisingly I suppose it was Charles Leclerc who emerged on top at the end of Q3 comfortably the fastest qualifier of the season is he now the fastest man in Formula he's 1 he's the fastest think? man in Formula 1 and he's the man who picks the wrong day to be the fastest man in Formula yeah. 1 because uh, unless you've got a sprint race there's not much going on on Saturdays is there but you know I think we discussed this on Saturday after he took pole there's a lot of fantastic Charles Leclerc qualifying laps at this point there's quite a, a collection of them Given the stakes and the margins and just the the sheer amount of extra pace he found on that last run in Q3, I'm struggling to remember a better one. He could come out and do a better one next Mm. weekend, but uh, 
on low fuel, the last lap of Q3, he is as box office as anyone we've seen in Formula One for a long, long time. And it's funny, the stat that kept getting thrown around on the weekend is he's the first driver to take four consecutive poles, not win any of those races since one Pablo Montoya 20 years ago. And he's the guy that I had in mind in terms of a guy who's able to just completely wring a time out of a car that you haven't seen all weekend for one incredible lap in Q3. Back in those days, Montoya was the man at the end of qualifying, but uh, didn't help him much on Sundays. And uh, unfortunately, Leclerc is following that trend at this point. Yeah, not a stat you want. Four poles in a row, a 0% conversion rate, but that sort of speaks to the season so far, doesn't it? Mm. The qualifying laps from Leclerc tend to be spectacular. Box office is a great way to describe it. And there's something about that car that just clicks with him, isn't it? There's a slightly loose rear end. It's a little bit on the nose, yet he's able to extract confidence from it, certainly in a way that Carlos Sainz isn't. And that's kind of the the philosophy of that Ferrari car. Yes, it's very laden with downforce, but it is a little bit on the nose, works beautifully for Charles Leclerc. To contrast, though, with Red Bull Racing, we've got a car that suddenly feels... Very much sort of the opposite of what Max Verstappen wants. We were so used to Max, and I'm thinking, well, maybe I shouldn't think about Saudi Arabia last season because he ultimately crashed the car. But mm. the liveliness of that lap is sort of what it feels like we're seeing from Leclerc now. But we're seeing Verstappen on a Saturday is just not able to access that level of performance because of the way that car is configured this season. Well, and the fact that Sergio Perez is mm. able to, and I think that points to the fact that this year's Red Bull is a much more neutral car, less extreme. It's been a defining characteristic of Red Bull for the last few years. Verstappen's the only guy that's been able to wring a lap time out of it. And, you know, we had that incredible lap, the pole lap that wasn't in Saudi last year, as you you mentioned. But this year, it's a lot more neutral of a car, less extreme. Verstappen's able to live with the instability, as it's shown over the last couple of years. Now it's more neutral. It brings it much more to Sergio Perez's window. And look, until the race... Perez had Verstappen's measure the entire weekend and another outstanding performance by him in qualifying. But it's certainly a car compared to last year's car where he's a bit lost for a lot of the year. It plays very much towards his strengths over one lap this season. Now, in the interests of of fairness and balance, because we're going to be talking down Ferrari a lot, I suspect, over the course of this episode, (laughs) in qualifying, Perez, the end of Q3, had a a refueling problem, kept him in the garage that prevented him from getting or giving Max Verstappen a toe, in fact, as well. Mm. I mean, ultimately didn't cost him the front row, but maybe cost him a chance to get a little bit closer to Charles Leclerc. Max Verstappen had a DRS problem in practice, or an entire rear wing problem in practice, in fact, and then also in the race was told not to use it. We've seen that DRS problem in several races now, along with a variety of other more minor issues, excluding, of course, the two power unit problems that afflicted him at the start of the the season, two of the first three races. Mm. Is it fair to say that Red Bull still has these problems potentially lurking and they've been a little bit overshadowed, I guess, in this race, considering what else happened? A little bit. Look, I mean, they are fallible. We've seen that this year. They tend to have their problems at more opportune times than Ferrari, (laughs) shall we say, in that uh, I'm sure for right now, Charles Leclerc would probably uh, sacrifice one of those four poles for a car that finished the race on Sunday. I mean, give him Spain or Mm. Azerbaijan. I'm sure he'd like to still be circulating at the end of those. But look, Red Bull are certainly not bulletproof. This DRS thing, it's been hanging around now for a few races, but it hasn't really cost them yet. And I think yet's probably the key word. We know that these two teams at this point are significantly quicker than everybody else. George Russell in the Mercedes was fifth on the grid in qualifying. He was 1.3 seconds off pole. So you've got you know a two-team 
A tier of Formula One at the moment. It almost they can make mistakes and still qualify on the front two rows. But at the moment, there is a degree of some good fortune that Red Bull's problems don't seem to be happening when it's going to hurt them the most points wise on a Sunday. Now, if we turn our attention to the race, unfortunately, it was defined almost exclusively by a variety of Ferrari power unit failures. Mm. This decided almost every element of this Grand Prix. Very unfortunate for Ferrari. The first one was lap nine. Poor old Carlos Sainz feels like he can't build any momentum at all this season. He triggered a virtual safety car when his hydraulic system let go at turn four, I think it was. Uh, and that triggered Charles Leclerc to pit very early, lap nine, uh, to switch from mediums to hards. Interesting in this is two different things. One is that Ferrari jumped for that decision. They decided to pit, and not only did they decide to have him pit, I think even he decided for himself. They both made the decision roughly at the same time, and I guess it worked out for them. There was no stop disaster in the pit lane. But also that Red Bull Racing decided to pit neither driver. Now, Charles Leclerc had dropped a second at this point. Of course, he was jumped off the line by Sergio Perez. We ultimately don't know how this race was going to play out because, spoiler, of course, Charles Leclerc did not finish. Mm. But what can we speculate that this means for Ferrari? Because certainly Red Bull Racing was very confident they had the race pace to win this regardless. Do you think Ferrari perhaps thought that as well? What's interesting to me is this race was very close to not playing out for those 10 laps where it was a strategic battle the way Mm. it did because I think Red Bull probably would have called Perez in if they'd realised early enough and he was past the pit lane entry at that point. And my understanding is that Leclerc made that decision just before Ferrari told him to come in. He did the opposite to what Perez did. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if Red Bull intended to have both cars stay out, but then they were committed to doing that after Leclerc had dived into the pits and Verstappen kept going. So, you know, you accidentally had this situation where for 10 laps there, and we'll get to why the strategy didn't play out in a minute, but for 10 laps there, we had Ferrari maybe jumping the gun a little bit because I think they realised that they were going to be vulnerable because of the straight line speed of the Red Bull through the last sector and down the uh, two-kilometre freeway start-finish straight. I think they realised that they had to do something because I think being able to pass a Red Bull on that straight, even with DRS, was going to be difficult. So I wasn't surprised that Ferrari jumped when they did. As much as it was optimistic they were going to be doing 41 laps on the hard tyre, I was a little bit surprised that Red Bull chose not to react even on the next lap. But... uh, In the end, I guess it didn't play out, but uh, you do have to wonder whether... Look, I think we'll get to Perez in a minute, but I think Perez had kind of dug his own grave to a point because of how hard he'd gone Mm -hmm. in those first nine laps after he got to the lead. So I don't know strategically he was still in the game at that point, but uh, it was interesting that Ferrari chose to jump so quickly, given that neither Red Bull blinked, did they? Yeah, also impressive, I guess, they jumped so quickly when one of their cars had failed. So, you know, maybe developing a little bit of that two-track mind, which is good, I suppose, after the unpleasantness of Monaco. Mm. Red Bull said part of the reason they didn't pit, and yes, part of it was simply because Perez didn't have the opportunity to by the time they'd realised what was happening, was also that they just didn't have the long-run information to know if 41 laps was going to be sustainable. They were certainly very sceptical that was the case. Christian Horner was also adamant that the car just had that Sunday pace regardless. I think what's really interesting here is that we knew, to to rewind a little bit, before the Spanish Grand Prix that Ferrari had a little bit of a Sunday problem. Very quick on Saturday, race pace, tyre degradation in particular was not optimal compared to Red Bull Racing. They reckon it's fixed, but we don't really know, do we? Because we haven't, we just don't have enough race information based on that. And do you suspect, having seen at least Max Verstappen's side of this equation, having seen how well he executed this race, admittedly, with no pressure, mm. that maybe Red Bull still does have a little bit more in reserve on Sunday? Look, particularly in a situation like Baku, yes. Uh, I think that particular circuit certainly played to the relative strength of that car relative to the Ferrari. So 
I think you know Red Bull had them probably covered regardless in Baku. I mean, look, we don't have enough evidence, as you were saying, from previous races. Monaco is an anomaly. You can throw that one mm. out. Spain, we never really got to see how that race was going to play out. But on a Sunday, the Red Bull is clearly the better car. But I think that margin was accentuated because of the track layout of Azerbaijan and the way those two cars are, are set up. Rebel all year has been incredibly slippery in a straight line and uh, and on the straights, and uh, there are no longer straights in Formula One than there is <laughs> yeah. at, uh, in Baku, is there? Exactly right. His margin at the end, Max Verstappen, was 20 seconds, which is pretty big considering second was his teammate, Sergio Perez, and Perez had been leading the race mm. early on in that first stint. That's a gap of around six-tenths of a second a lap once they switched tyres over the last 30-odd laps. The team said this was a little bit more to do with Sergio Perez having a qualifying focus in terms of his up and obviously he was very quick in qualifying whereas red uh, whereas max verstappen had a more of a race focused setup even though he didn't quite have as much perhaps straight line advantage over perez maybe he would have thought that was the case i also thought that was interesting though was the way they treated perez with the pit stops they brought him in first uh the stop was a little bit slow i suppose that's no one's fault of course but it did mean there was no opportunity for him to strategically get ahead of max verstappen be near max verstappen in the second stint is it reading too much into that? I mean, we're talking a lot about whether or not Sergio Perez is able to to contend for race wins and all that kind of th- stuff. It was clear he didn't have the pace ultimately this weekend, but it also felt to me like he wasn't ever going to win this race roughly when we got to the pit stops. I'm assuming you've got me on this week because Jos Verstappen wasn't available for you. <laughs> but, um, I mean, it's interesting, wasn't it? Because Perez made an incredible start and got to the front, I think a couple of things happened. It's like, ooh. He's in the lead, and he was pulling away yeah. at such a rate in those first few laps that it was pretty clear that he'd taken too much out of his tyres early. And that's not something we say with Sergio Perez. Mm. He is the tyre whisperer. He is the best at this. So he was clearly into some difficulties. He had to stop first because the pace was not there. He was complaining about breaking traction, and it clearly wasn't going to be a long first stint for him. The cynic in me wonders if the uh, slow pit stop was... Uh, convenient, shall we say. They would have found another way. Look, with Ferrari out of the equation, Red Bull were clearly going to find another way to maximise the points advantage over the lead driver of the other team in the championship fight that was no longer in the race. That's just you know, that's just good business, quite frankly. It's just being sensible. But even regardless of that, I think the way Perez drove those first five or six laps was a guy who perhaps didn't expect to have A, to be in the lead, B, to have the lead that he did. And it was an unusual race for him in that normally he's a little more patient than that. So mm. perhaps it forced Red Bull's hand strategically. Unfortunately for him, he got the rough end of the pineapple with the pit stops. But uh, look, I don't think he had, after those first probably six or eight laps of the race, he wasn't in Verstappen's league in terms of pace. And uh, look, in the end, they... Verstappen did make what was effectively the race-winning pass on his teammate on lap 15, and Perez was told no fighting, but it wasn't really much of a fight from where I sat. It was almost more commentary on radio, wasn't it, than an instruction? Correct. Yeah, no fighting. Yeah, there you go. Fair enough. <laughs> Fighting's bad. That was the race-winning move, as you said correctly, uh, although that was, of course, after Charles Leclerc's engine did fail 20 mm. laps in. This was really, in many respects, the story of this race, or the reverse side of the coin of Max Verstappen accelerating into the, to a much stronger championship lead than he arrived in Baku with. What's more concerning for you here? The fact that this is the third power unit in three races in the back of a Ferrari car or the second in three for Charles Leclerc, the fact that four from six Ferrari engine cars had a problem here, or the fact that the team admits that it knows that there is some kind of problem rather than it being 
a series of random coincidences and that it actually doesn't have a fix for it yet. I'm going option D, which is all of the above. But <laughs> of the three options you gave me there, I think the fact that they know there's a problem, they're not 100% sure what the problem is and they're not sure how to fix it. It's a big, it's a bit of a different mm. scenario if we've had the same thing happen three times now. We know what it is. We're working on a fix. We will have a fix in place by insert race here. They know when they're going to be able to bring a fix to the track that's going to alleviate this from happening. At the moment, there's a bit of, oh, it's happened again. What do we do here? (laughs) And as you were saying before, I mean, so many of the retirees in this race were Ferrari-powered cars. So not only do you have the cascading unreliability here, it all compounds race after race after race. You would not be surprised in the slightest if this happens once more to uh, Leclerc in the next three races, perhaps, from an advantageous Mm -hmm. position. And at the moment, look, we know that Verstappen had some unreliability earlier on in the season, but it wasn't a a trend or a theme to them. They were slightly different problems every time. And look, Red Bull's won the last five Grand Prix now. And so not only are they fast, they're approaching that bulletproof status. They're under no real threat from any other team behind. So you add all those things together... Ferrari need to find this fix and they need to find it quickly because this could slip out of their grasp very, very fast, which is crazy when you think that once Charles Leclerc won in Australia, we were looking at the standings and thinking, wow, that's he's got you know a race and a half lead over Verstappen and our Red Bull in trouble. And you look at what's happened in the five races since, it's uh, it's changed very, very fast, hasn't it? Yeah, 46 points up on Verstappen to 34 down. What's our quick mathematics? That's 80 points. It's an 80-point turnaround. It's a nice and round number, isn't it? That's Incredible. an average of 16 points lost over the last five races. I hope that adds up anyway, but they're the numbers. Well, well and 80 points now, of course, is the lead that Red Bull has over yes. Ari in the Constructors' Championship, which you certainly wouldn't have predicted after we left Albert Park back in April. It is an incredible turn of events. Still a long way to go, of course, but, I mean, such a dramatic turnaround, very difficult to, well, impossible to gloss over, in fact... It's really interesting to think that not only is the fact, okay, we've lost two races or Charles Leclerc's lost two races now to unreliability. He's very far behind, but that is the same number of DNFs that Max Verstappen has recorded mm. this season. Now, a lot of the, uh, the other bad results he's got are not, in fact, very few of them are the result of unreliability. It's inevitably been human error, whether from the, the cockpit or the pit wall. And I, I thought what was interesting during the week, and this is a bit of a broader topic of discussion, I suppose, is that Mattia Bonotto, and I don't know why he would say this out loud, sort of said, well, you know, we didn't really expect to be racing for the championship this year. We just want to be competitive. It's almost like taking it one game at a time and going out there to have fun. Mm. I thought that was really interesting to say in the background of all of these problems that suddenly seem to have allowed the championship momentum to slip away, if not the title itself. Mm. Is that really the way we should be looking at this, I suppose? That this is an unexpectedly big step forward Ferrari's made in a very short amount of time considering their last couple of years. And maybe everyone just got a little bit ahead of themselves. Well, look, if you're thinking that, that's one thing. It's another thing to verbalise it, particularly particularly after the first three races of the season. You're approaching this conversation from a position of strength. Mm. And, you know, whether whether you're just trying to sell the workforce on this or not, to say, well, look, you know, we... We, we completely expect to be here and we're ready to be here. I think that's a very, very different message for internally at Ferrari and what it says to the rest of the world championship. It's like, we've got a big rule reset here. These guys have been waiting for this moment to get themselves back in the sharp end of the game and they're here and they believe they should be here. So whether it was some sort of a, a Freudian slip to try and, I don't know, distract people from the fact that they have had these unreliability issues of late, but it was curious. I, I must admit it did prick my ears up as well, but... Uh, 
It's one thing to think it, but maybe don't say that or just keep that in a meeting when you're not on Zoom or something or other. Just keep, keep that one nice and quiet because what it shows to me is maybe a degree a degree of vulnerability and not any lack of ambition, but maybe a lack of preparedness. Mm-hmm. And that's a little bit of what we've seen in these past few races. Now, look, you know, what goes around comes around. We know that the way this sport works, we still have 14 Michael races to go. <laughs> so there's plenty of time in what effectively is a two-horse race. But it was a very curious admission from someone running a team to say, like, you know, we're just uh, we're just happy to be here at this point. <laughs> Interesting too as well, really. If, if these are all ultimately absolutely inherent in the engine, it's not anything to do with the way it's installed or whatever. I mean, the engine is the thing that's most restricted in terms yes. of development. In fact, the um, combustion side of things is locked in now. The electronic side gets locked in September. There are, of course, scope to make reliability fixes, but it's now just the focus on reliability rather than making it an overall step in the engine to fix the reliability problem that'll make the whole thing work better. It's much more restricted in the way that they can potentially fix these problems. So absolutely one to watch over the course of the season, obviously. Enough considering I think we all probably need Ferrari to be in the championship fight to make these last 14 races a bit interesting. Indeed we do. A little bit further down the order, it was George Russell completing the podium in third in a very increasingly familiar spot for George, with Lewis Hamilton a very painful fourth after passing Pierre Gasly uh, with a, a second stop during another virtual safety car, this one caused by Kevin Magnussen's Ferrari power unit. And then came an excellent Sebastian Vettel in sixth for Aston Martin. But we'll get back to Mercedes a little bit later on because I want to approach it from a different perspective. I want to go now to the battle for seventh. Fernando Alonso holding off the McLaren duo, Daniel Ricciardo and Lando Norris in that order. A couple of interesting things to unpack here, though, and I want to start with Fernando Alonso specifically. Could not be overtaken, and that's not simply just commentary on Fernando Alonso's style, but also the way they approach this race. Alpine knew, I guess, where its strengths lay. That car was incredibly quick in a straight line that certainly paid dividends. The rear wing on the Alpine was kind of comedic for the entire weekend, to be honest. When you looked at it relative to all of the other cars in the midfield, you're looking at it thinking, is my TV playing up or is that a mistake? Or what if they put the wrong wing on? But they clearly went into this race with a philosophy that they would live with the instability of the car through the twisty stuff, knowing that once they came out of what effectively is the last proper quarter there and they go onto the two-kilometre straight, you would have absolutely zero chance of passing Fernando Alonso, who gets his elbows out at the best of times. They couldn't even get close enough to even force him to get his elbows out because he was 16 k's an hour faster through the speed trap mm-hmm. than a Mercedes. And when you're talking the end of straight speed there with that rear wing on, you were just not going to pass him. So you were going to rely on Fernando Alonso making a mistake. And if there's one thing we know about Fernando Alonso, when he's in an advantageous position, he does not make mistakes very often. So it was interesting with McLaren in that they had they were in an interesting situation in that strategically they haven't had both cars in the fight around each other for quite some time because of Daniel Ricciardo's poor performance relative to Lando Norris. This was a weekend where they were both in play, and no matter which way they struck it, Daniel started on the hard tyre and finished on the medium. Norris did the opposite. They had team orders one way, they had team orders the other way. In the end, none of them even showed Fernando Alonso a wheel. Mm. So they spent 51 laps trying to come up with a strategy to beat an Alpine that was a rocket ship on the start-finish straight, and they never even got to force Fernando Alonso to defend what ended up becoming seventh place. So for all of the hand-wringing and the uh, radio messages going on at McLaren, it was a bit of a lost cause because Alonso wasn't losing that seventh place, was he? Yeah, and I mean, that just shows, I suppose, the value of someone like Fernando Alonso to make what is a fairly risky setup, I suppose, work. I mean, Azerbaijan, unforgiving track if you get it wrong. Mm. 
he's not one to get it wrong, as you said. You touched on the way McLaren was approaching this race. I guess there was a little bit of frustration, understandably so, the fact that they had a car right in front of them, most of the race just two seconds up the road, mm. and there was nothing to be done about it just because of that straight-line speed advantage. But... Daniel Ricciardo, a really great week, uh, weekend for him, really solid weekend, the kind of weekend he's probably needed after the last couple of races, was the faster of the two in that opening stint of the race. The McLaren just seemed to like that hard tyre more because Norris got the advantage of it in the second half of the Grand Prix. But it was interesting, despite you know the, the, the battle with Fernando Alonso had not played out at that point, despite Ricciardo being on the alternative strategy, needing to run quite long in that first stint, being clearly the faster driver. Were you surprised, as I was, that, that he wasn't given an opportunity to try and pass Fernando Alonso, considering that was something contemplated even later on in the race? Yeah, look, for a couple of reasons. A, I think the way... If you'd not allowed Ricardo to pass Norris, which they ultimately didn't in the first phase of the race, there was a known outcome there. Mm-hmm. And you still would have probably been eighth and ninth on pace and on merit, but you never actually gave Alpine any choice to to think they could just run the race they wanted to run because if you'd released Ricardo and he could have in the first he could have possibly got up behind a lot so we don't know but it would have made Alpine think at least mm. all McLaren did was basically hold station and it was a predictable result from there no matter which of them was eighth or ninth and you have to remember for the team they're not going particularly well at the moment it's six points for them regardless of which driver finishes um, ahead of the other in that team but What I thought was interesting was this is one of the rare weekends where Daniels had very good pace. And I think to capitalize on that and the psychological lift that would have given him, let him go and let him have a go. Mm -hmm. Now, if it doesn't work out, you could always flip them back. Norris was on the better tire later in the race, as you said. I thought they dithered a little bit on, do we upset the guy who's been our number one driver all year for the sake of letting Daniels through and then potentially flipping it later in the race, they didn't actually ask the question of Alpine. So that, to me, was the only mistake they made in that, yes, they still banked the points they were probably going to bank, but they did it without really ever asking Alpine a question. And would Ricardo have been able to got closer to Alonso with that opening stint? We will never know that. And look, in the end, he was able to pit under the second virtual safety car, and that was the reason he stayed out ahead of Norris. But uh, they didn't actually venture anything to gain anything, did they? Yeah, I think that's a really great way to describe it, in fact. They never really asked any questions of Alpine because the driver challenging uh, up until the end with Daniel Ricciardo was just pretty much on the same strategy. And there was nothing to be done at the start of the race, ultimately nothing to be done later. I thought it was really interesting uh, that Daniel Ricciardo was rough Roughly a second quicker than Norris once Norris got out of the way and pitted at the end of uh, his first stint. So it sort of really illustrated that there was pace in that one. Did come back towards Norris at the end of the race, as we said. And, I mean, Loris played he played the, the team game ultimately, didn't he? He was asked not to pass. There was a little bit of dithering, as you said. The team thought about maybe swapping them and then swapping them back if Norris couldn't pass just to see what was going on. Ultimately, didn't even do that. Decided to just leave them in position and bank what ultimately is some valuable points for McLaren. But I thought it was interesting to listen to Lando Norris talk after the race saying, of course, he was a little bit frustrated not to be able to pass Daniel. He's a racing driver. That's his job to be frustrated when he potentially could have finished higher but that he felt there was a difference between a team order in the middle of the race, when it was benefiting him, of course, and one at the end of the race, when they were just racing for position between themselves. Do you think there's anything in that argument? This goes back to me to Monza last year. Mm -hmm. And you look at the time that these two drivers have spent as teammates, and it's not really a contest. Norris has clearly had the upper hand. 
McLaren has won one Grand Prix in the past 10 years, and it wasn't by Lando Norris. It was by Daniel Ricciardo. And I think that's still a bit of a sore spot. You remember the end of Monza last year, or towards the middle of Monza last year, it's like, Daniel needs to speed up. I'm faster, mm-hmm. you know, basically asking their team to, to flip the order. And they were never going to do it because they were going to finish first and second and they hadn't won a Grand Prix for so long. I always thought the last part of that race, and look, I have spoken to Daniel about this, the fact he set the fastest lap of the Italian Grand Prix last year on the yeah. last lap of the race, it's like, uh, by the way, Sunshine, I had a little bit in my pocket. Mm-hmm. So don't, you know, don't, don't come at me with this I'm faster nonsense. And, you, you know, he's playing the game at that point. I don't, look, for the, te- the team ultimately doesn't, I say doesn't care. They're going to bank six points regardless. What mm-hmm. they don't need at the moment, given their relative lack of performance, is for their guys to be tripping over one another, A, for the points you lose on the day, but B, for the precedent that that sets. They've got bigger issues at the moment, McLaren, than dealing with two drivers scrapping and running into each other and doing all sorts of other silliness. They take their six points. They're probably pleased that Daniel Ricciardo was on the pace of his teammate for this weekend, and they hope that continues. And they've got to move on as a group because right now they're kind of floundering when you think they finished in Baku behind an Alpine, mm-hmm. behind an Aston Martin, behind an Alpha Tauri. They've got bigger fish to fry at the moment. So I thought, oh, I didn't love the radio commentary from Norris. I understand it. He's a racing driver. Of course he wants to be able to finish one place higher and particularly over his teammate. But I wasn't sure there was a heap to be gained out of that. Yeah, I think that's a fair way to describe it. And uh, it, fortunately for Daniel, I suppose the strategy worked out in the best way it could have, considering that virtual safety car arrived at the right time. Rather than losing potentially a place to Bottas behind Norris, he ended up gaining that place on Norris. And that's the way they finished in that battle. But let's go back up the grid a little bit to Mercedes, because this was one of the stories of the weekend, one of the really big stories of the weekend, just the the unfortunate bouncing of that car. Now, the car was... Still the third quickest, as is pretty much always where Mercedes has been this season. Admittedly, 1.3 seconds off the pace was George Russell qualifying, so a very distant third, even if it was quite a long lap in Baku. But this was a new level, next level of this bouncing. We could literally hear it through the microphones, through the even the, the pit. The, the, the pit radio microphones that, that are in the helmets, you could hear the floor of the car scraping along the ground on the Mercedes. Not only that, though, but it's affecting, or it did affect in, in Azerbaijan, virtually every other team to a greater or lesser extent. I thought it was interesting to hear Daniel Ricciardo say this was the first time he'd experienced it, and he gets it now, and mm. he would be fully supportive of potential changes to make sure this doesn't happen. Do you suspect anything's going to happen if all of the drivers are now united? And and what role are the team principals, who seemingly are, are not so interested in change, going to play in this? Well, team principals are more interested in performance, let's be perfectly honest, as they should be from mm-hmm. sitting on the pit wall and not behind one of these cars going up and down like a trampoline. And it's one of the unfortunate byproducts of this new rule set. Mercedes has got it worse than anyone. We've seen it the entire season. And yet Ferrari, for example, they get plenty of porpoising. Yeah. The car manages to settle itself when it gets into the corners, which the Mercedes doesn't. It looks really, really unstable. But as you were saying, the sheer, just the, just the violence of the, the oscillation of the bouncing of that Mercedes on the straight, particularly that last sector at Baku where you're winding your way through some concrete blocks. George Russell said he couldn't see his pit board. Mm. And so you do wonder at this point, there is a trade-off between performance and I guess safety is the word. The the drivers have got a perspective that nobody else can have on this. What I hope isn't the catalyst for change is 
an accident, someone suffering an injury, someone making a mistake and taking out a rival or doing something because they literally couldn't see or their body was under stress. And you know, I'm sure right now there's some people that are curious as to the neurological impact of all mm. of this because you look at some of the other circuits that we've got coming up and look, Baku's 2K straight is very, very extreme, as we said, but think of some of the other tracks where you've got a lot of violent movements. And you know, Singapore's the one for me. You think how hot and steamy and difficult that track is. We haven't been there for a while. You add the way these cars drive, that's going to be, I mean, that's a brutal race anyway. Can you imagine what that race is going to be like when it happens? If there's not some sort of resolution between where we are now and where we are when we get to Singapore. So I think there is a safety issue brewing here, but getting the team principals and the teams themselves to understand that they're interested in performance ultimately at the end of the day. And I fear that it's going to take some sort of accident or something amiss happening to one of the drivers to get some more unanimity on this. But I think you mentioned before that Daniel Ricciardo commented after the race that now he gets it because McLaren hasn't really been afflicted Mm -hmm. by this. And his description after the race, he said it was like dribbling a basketball really, really violently, just up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down. Doing that, down that start-finish straight for 51 laps over an hour and a half on a day that was warm but not crazy warm and the rest of the track is very different to that. If he's getting that sort of a reaction there, then you do wonder what's coming at some of these other circuits, particularly at cars that suffer from this problem more. So, uh, look, George Russell's position here is interesting as a director of the Grand Prix Drivers Association. His voice will carry a little more weight. And uh, I'm sure there's quite a few emails flying back and forth at the moment discussing what's the best way forward with this. Because to me, this isn't a performance issue. Should it be something that we just put up with? I don't know if we have to, do we? Yeah, I think that is a good point. It's going to be really interesting. It's been a long time since we've seen... Uh, maybe like a, a triangular contest of ideas in Formula One, I yes. think, where we've got so many parties with different perspectives on the one issue and one that really at the heart of it is affecting the drivers and their workplace ultimately or the way they go about their job. Uh, and they're the ones putting their lives on the line at the end of the day and putting their bodies at risk. And we all saw Lewis Hamilton very gingerly climb from his car looking a lot older than he really is. So I think there is something more to be said about that. And look, the next race is in Canada, another long straight, another very fast circuit, not quite quite as bumpy as Azerbaijan, but a lot of curb use there as well. That's going to be another interesting test for these cars. And we'll just have to see how that one plays out. Undoubtedly, there is more to play out. An interesting race in Baku, unless you're a Ferrari fan, I suppose, but hopefully not the defining chapter for those hoping for a close title fight. Matt, it was a pleasure to talk about it with you. Thanks for having me. The news just keeps getting worse and worse for Ferrari. Four Ferrari-powered cars failed to reach the flag in Baku, and that's off the back of a spate of failures in the last four races. It's a failure rate incompatible with a championship challenge. Only a quick fix can ensure Leclerc can keep in touch with the title leaders from here. Thanks very much to Matt Clayton for joining me. The Strategy Report is powered by LeaveCal. Keep track of employee leave and make resource planning easy. Search LeaveCal in the Zero App Store. You can subscribe to The Strategy Report wherever you get your favourite podcasts. And don't forget to leave us a rating and a review to help spread the word. You can also find us on social media. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast. Special thanks to Ben Loke from Bloke Designs for the show artwork, and our theme music is by Simon Osford. My name's Michael Laminato, and I'll be back next week to review the Canadian Grand Prix.